Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Scripture reading comes in Matthew chapter 5. So now listen to the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. If there's any question if Jesus was initiating an upside-down kingdom through these Beatitudes, this final Beatitude seals the deal. Because in this, we find such a contrary idea to the way of this world. To talk about there being blessing in persecution... This uh, is very countercultural for our day and age, and it promises us a blessing, a beatitude. So today's message is going to be a little bit different than usual. What we're going to talk about today is we're going to uh, reframe this idea, idea around persecution, around the blessing of persecution. Uh, but then I, I want to spend some time doing something out of the ordinary. I want to talk about just the state of the church, just the state of the church here in our culture in America, as well as the state of the church uh, globally, we don't really take a time out and kind of take a step back about our re- and think about our relationship with the world, within our culture. So we're going to do that. But I believe that Jesus concludes these Beatitudes with this Beatitude around persecution for great reason. St. Augustine actually believed that there were seven, not eight, but seven Beatitudes. And this eighth one, this final statement, is different that persecution actually comes as a consequence from living out the first seven Beatitudes. That if you actually are someone who's living out uh, being a peacemaker, you'll find persecution. If you're actually someone who's mourning with those who are mourning, who are people who are extravagant with mercy, people who live out with meekness, that persecution will surely come. This is why this beatitude is not just merely blessed are those who are persecuted. But notice, it's blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Uh, For us to understand the blessing of this, we have to remember that it's because of righteousness. I asked my friend, uh, Jewish scholar Sandy Kress, in our conversations one time, is Jewish understanding of righteousness. In part because Sandy's taught me so many different things Uh, such deep and rich uh, truths about Scripture and about a Jewish understanding. And so I asked him about righteousness. Like, what is, can you tell me, what is righteousness? And he said, well, Mark, righteousness means rightness. Oh, okay, great, thanks. But for what he was pointing to is that this idea of righteousness simply means that we are living in the right way that God has told us to. That righteousness simply is Hearing God say, it is right and good for you to live this way, and then living in that way. So it is right and good for us to care for the orphan, for the widow, for the refugee. This is just simply right. 
And so when we are living that way, when we are people of mercy, we are living in God's righteousness, God's rightness. And so what this beatitude saying here is that there is a unique blessing in being persecuted because you're following the rightness of God. When we are living in the way of God, what, the way God is described as being good and right in this persecution, that Jesus promises a blessing. There is a blessing there. But we must be careful. And sometimes I believe as Christians or the church that we are too flippant in throwing out this notion of persecutions. Oh, we can be persecuted with this experience or that. But there are times where we are rejected as Christians and we have to wonder if we're being persecuted because of God's rightness or our own rightness. Are we being thoughtful in how we engage our culture? And it, the rejection that we're experiencing, is it the rejection of God and God's righteousness, rightness, or is it how flippant we can be, how thoughtless we can be in bearing witness to who God is in this world. Uh, I remember while I was in seminary at Baylor, I knew a freshman who was being encouraged to be more radical and zealous in sharing his faith. I remember this well. I was in Penland Hall, which is uh, not where the rest of my 24-year-old friends out there in the world were living, but I was living in Penland Hall, in a freshman dorm. I was their chaplain at Baylor, and so I would go to the cafeteria, and this one young man who was yeah, being encouraged to be more zealous with his sharing his faith, I remember seeing him stand up on the table and yelling out a sermonette there in front of the cafeteria. And uh, with all zeal, with all passion, you know, interrupting these fellow Baylor students' meal. And uh, quickly thereafter, people started yelling at him to shut up and uh, throwing napkins at him to shut up. And, and, and you could imagine this freshman who I knew uh, come down from this table, and among many things, one of the things he could feel was a righteous zeal and the idea of possibly even being persecuted for his witness. Now, the question we are left with is, is that persecution? Well, maybe if God called him to do it, then I, I don't know, maybe. But it also could have been in the rightness of God not to scream a sermon to students who just got out of a mandatory chapel service. Maybe you've been in the rightness of God to find the foreign exchange student who is completely disoriented so they can be a friend. Or for the person who maybe is feeling isolated and alone or marginalized, for there to be a faithful witness in that relationship or even the cafeteria worker who is behind the scenes cleaning up tables when students are stepping on them. Maybe like that's the person to engage this relationship to find how you can be in prayer for them. Maybe that looks more like the rightness of God. We just have to be very thoughtful when we think of the ways in which we are being persecuted for our faith. Is it our rightness or is it God's rightness? Is it Jesus' rightness? And how will we, will we know if indeed we are following the right way of Jesus? Among many things, one of the gifts we have in knowing the rightness of God are these beatitudes. These beatitudes are actually describing the rightness of Jesus, this kingdom that Jesus was initiating and sending into this world, that in this peacemaking, a passion for meekness, of mercy, of 
justice and righteousness, mourning with those who mourn. This is what Jesus called good and right. And though persecution may come, we know that when we are abiding in the way of Jesus, that there is a blessing in our suffering. There's a power in our suffering. Romans 5 says it like this, We boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Like suffering is just not the end of itself, but it actually is doing something in God's kingdom. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. In God's kingdom, it begins with suffering and it ends with hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that, who has been given to us. That the end of our persecution and our suffering is hope because God loves to pour His Spirit, His presence in the midst of our suffering so that it can end with hope and in God's presence. As we live out these Beatitudes, not only do we follow the way of Jesus, but I believe that Jesus meets us with power and passion. What starts with suffering moves through perseverance and character. It builds us, but it ends with hope. And with hope, there's a unique closeness with Jesus. This is what happens when we follow Jesus, we follow the rightness of Jesus, and we find somehow that there's suffering that happens. There have been so many examples of Christians who have lived lived this out, but I, I love what Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of. He spoke of it so eloquently in this. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot, in all good conscience, obey your unjust laws, because non-cooperation with evil is as much as moral obligation, as much a moral obligation as it is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. This is what happens when we follow the rightness of Jesus. We meet not only the needs of this world, not only does Jesus even promise suffering, but in this suffering there is character, perseverance, and hope. And I believe when we follow Jesus' right way of living, this world is full of double victories, just like Dr. King just spoke of. That there is God's redemptive work in suffering. So let us turn our attention now to the state of the church. I want to begin by just talking about the state of the American church. And then we'll finish with talking about the global church as we zoom out to see how this beatitude applies to our world today. Uh, Though it may not look like it, the church is going through a seismic shift in our society. Huge changes are happening right underneath us. A Christian leader and author by the name of Phyllis Tickle 
which I, I'm trying not to giggle at her name. I didn't giggle. You did. Uh, <laughs> um, she wrote extensively about the nature of church and church history. What she proposed as she looked through church history is every 500 years, there's a massive change within church and society. Every 500 years, there's an upheaval of the ways, way things are with the church and our world because old answers no longer hold true for the large number of people in this world. And the church has to reconsider how to bear witness not accommodate the very uh, the integrity of the church, but to reconsider the way in which we communicate the church to this world. So 500 years ago, the upheaval was the Reformation. When the Protestant church was born, it was birthed out of this Reformation. And from that one uh, Protestant Reformation, now there's over 37,000 different denominations worldwide within the Protestant church. Five years, 500 years before that was uh, in the 11th century, the church went through the Great Schism. The church split into the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. That was massively um, disruptive for the understanding of the Catholic, Big C, the understanding of one Catholic church and the witness that the church has to this world. 500 years before that was the decline and the fall of the Roman Empire, which interwoven within the church's identity when Constantine adopted the small minority, the small sect called the Christians, the followers of the way, and turned it into the Roman Empire's religion. So when the Roman uh, Empire fell, that dramatically changed the witness of the church in the world. And 500 years before, that was the great transition, the great transformation. So what about today? Today we're in this 500 years shifting, as some people would say. And some scholars call this shifting the end of Christendom. The word Christendom is used to describe the place of power and influence that Christianity has had in the West. This idea that in the West, as the church has been established as a place of great influence and of power, that's been the central role for our society. For America, we even think America as a Christian nation, this is a part of Christendom. The reality is that the church no longer holds the position it held only 40 years ago, a place of great respect and reverence and honor, and a place of authority. The church is no longer the center of our society, and with that is the loss of power, the loss of protection, and influence. There are huge implications for this cultural shift, but one implication is this. The church in America is losing our place in our society. The church can no longer walk into the cafeteria, step onto the table, and give our sermon without napkins flying our way. Or even worse, food, right? Napkins would be nice. For example, statisticians tell us that uh, within the Protestant church, how uh, we are decreasing in number uh, the group with the greatest gr growth in our society today is the group called the nuns. Not as in like a Catholic nun, but they're the people in our society, when they are asked what religious affiliation they have, they answer, none. I don't have a religious affiliation. And it's actually, this group is actually having the greatest growth within our society. By the year t uh, 2035, 35% of our population will have no religious affiliation. 
And for the first time in our nation's history, that will outnumber, the, outnumber Protestants. This is a great shifting within our society. And even though this is disorienting for the American church, if we look through our scriptures and our church history, this idea of being a minority is actually quite familiar. This will be a returning to the church's roots where followers of Jesus were a faithful yet marginalized minority. The story of God's people is not of power, a people of power and prominence, but a people of countercultural movements of meekness. And it's for us, <clears throat> we will have to rediscover our prophetic voice, which is usually a minority voice. It is the picture of, of the church being light, salt, and yeast, a little bit that affects a larger whole. This will be the new call for the church in the future. Missiologist Doug, Douglas Hall said about this new emerging world, the end of Christendom could be the beginning of something much more nearly like the, earthly, like the church, the disciple community described in, by the scriptures and throughout the ages by prophetic minorities. I believe that what we should expect from our society and our nation in the next several decades is not necessarily persecution, but a great indifference. I think it'll be a great indifference. I think our world will look at our witness and go, so what? And this for us will be a relearning. Just in the same ways there are upheavals that are answering different questions, I think this world is needing a different kind of witness from this church. Demographer and sociologist David Kinneman, he did a study about the our society's changing opinion of the church, and he used uh, all of his studies, he boiled it down to do two different descriptions in the way in which our society sees Christians, and the two different descriptions were this. The Christians were growingly irrelevant and extreme. Radical was the word he might have used. In a church culture that has subtly grown used to living in the Christian nation, we must begin to unlearn and to rediscover our role in our society, not to disengage from our culture, not to uh, demonize our culture, not to even assimilate into our culture, but to faithfully rediscover the historic practices that prepare us to bear witness to the world as this prophetic minority. And what are these practices? We can begin with the Beatitudes. These are the practices that bear witness of who Jesus is to this world, the rightness that Jesus wants to bring into this world. And a deeply held belief that I have, let me just pause here for a second. Like, what comes out of us when we hear of these changes? What comes out with our hearts and our minds, even now? Like, what are you feeling? Fear? Fear? Sadness? Excitement. What's that? You're glad. It's a mixed bucket in the midst of all of this. A deeply held belief that I carry in my heart is this. It's uncharted territory, so there's 
fear and there's sadness, but in uncharted territories for some of us who are wired for adventure, there's a potential. Remember, suffering ends with hope. And the suffering could even be the, the loss of position. That's a loss. Deeply held belief that I carry in my heart is this, that the church's reintroduction to being a faithful minority might actually be the best thing for the church. It might actually be the best thing for the church when fidelity to Jesus requires sacrifice and courage and countercultural living. This seems to be very near to Jesus' heart and words. When it's not just assumable that you're a Christian because you're American, that sounds like all of a sudden we're being introduced to this narrow gate that leads to life, and one that requires for us to reconsider the framework that we've been given of what it means to be Christian, to deconstruct that and allow through God's love and mercy to reconstruct a new and a uh, radical idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And the word radical, if you actually look and study it, that word radical means returning to the root. And I feel like for us, we have to return to the way of Jesus, to sacrifice and to let, let the threshing floor separate all that we have assumed what it means to be a Christian and return to this radical notion of being people of Jesus' way radically committed to one another, radically committed with compassion to this world, and radically committed to Jesus. The reason why this beatitude, I think, seems so very foreign to us is because we have grown used to being in the position that we've been. We are a suffering, avoidant society. Although we might deeply resonate with what we saw with Martin Luther King Jr., we resonate from a distance. We resonate from a distance. We need to remember that the central symbol of our communal faith is a cross. The symbol of death, sacrifice, and a symbol of compassion, laying down our lives for the sake of others. This will be challenging for our culture who has understood the idea of God's blessing as prosperity. And in the place of privilege, as power slips away, What comes out of us might be fear, and fear might hold us back from being the faithful witness that Jesus wants to be. But in the place of fear, we need a fresh wind of God's Spirit to blow through our church. And in that wind will be the the presence of courage and compassion, mercy and justice. We need that wind to blow through us, to inspire us, to give us a new picture of what it means to radically follow Jesus. Our prayer must not be, God, may you bring back the reign of Christendom. And instead, our prayer must be, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. This is the hope for our future and our society. And for me, it fuels me with great hope and excitement and a little bit of fear because I don't know what it's going to look like, especially as a parent. I don't know what it's going to look like for our children's generation, but I know that God has great dreams for this church. And in our unlearning, we have the opportunity to relearn the way of Jesus. But that's just America's experience. What about the rest of the world? We can be so, sometimes our blinders can be so shut in on our own experience, we're completely naive of what it's like to be the church in the rest of the world. Where persecution is a very present reality. The notion of loss of power and position 
uh, for us with our idea of persecution, it almost seems disingenuous when we see what the re- what's happening in the rest of this world. So there's a couple different ways for us to share the story about what's happening in the world. First off, I just want to share the numbers. There's just some stats for us to understand what's happening in the world today. First off, there have been more Christian martyrs in the last 100 years than the remaining 1,900 years. Today, 245 million Christians are facing persecution. In particular, this is the case for women and children, the most vulnerable in many societies. This means one out of nine Christians experience high levels of persecution today. Every month, 345 Christians are killed for their faith. 105 places of worship are burned or attacked. 219 Christians are detained without trial. What are the main countries where persecution is happening? where the persecuted church is having this take place? North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, and Pakistan. Though the American church speaks of persecution when we think about the potential of losing our tax identity and being a mockery in the, in the public, there are people for which to claim Jesus as Savior is a death sentence, a prison sentence. But the most interesting thing happens. If you look throughout history and even through our scriptures in the book of Acts, you would find something interesting. In the very places where their persecution happens the most is where the church usually expands the greatest. According to the World Evangelical Alliance, though the church is declining in the West, there's been incredible growth in the global South, in regions such as Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia, places that have the greatest uh, amount of oppression and need, there's the greatest expansion. For example, in the 1900s, there were 5.4 million Christians in Sub-Saharan Africa. Now there's over 500 million. In 1960, Nepal had only not, uh, 30 known Christians, but now there's 1.4 million believers in that country. This is growth despite persecution and struggle. It seems like the very soil of persecution is the soil where the gospel grows with the most fruit. Almost as if Jesus' words actually offer good news, that there's actually a blessing in those who are persecuted for righteousness. I heard a missionary recently share a conversation that they had with a, a pastor of an underground Chinese church. This American pastor shared with this uh, Chinese pastor that we are praying that persecution would come to an end in China. And the Chinese pastor quickly stopped and said, please, do not pray for the end of persecution. Pray for our faithfulness within persecution. In response, this American pastor came back, was processing what he had heard. And this is what he said. He said, we have seen the church thrive and spread in persecution, but it is unknown if the church will flourish in prosperity and comfort. Influence. In a, in a culture that understands God's blessing as prosperity, this beatitude confronts us. It seeks to rewire our understanding, our thinking, and our appetites more than comfort, more than position, more than power. The greatest goal for us is to be a faithful witness to Jesus in word and in deed. This is why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 4, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, it's the most fragile thing in their culture, jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power 
is from God and it's not from us. This power is, is, is from God. It's not from our society, not from our culture. This power is from God. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far awaits them all. So we fix our eyes on not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The persecuted church in this world today, that is the reality of their experience. We might read this and resonate with it, but for they, they know that they're, what it means to be hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. They know what it's like to be feeling like they're wasting away, but God's presence is renewing them day by day. They know what it means not to lose heart. And they know what it means to have their eyes set on something that's eternal. It's not temporary. What I see in this beatitude is, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you know who thinks about heaven more than you and I? People who are persecuted. Do you know people who have a longing for Jesus to bring this uh, kingdom to this world? People who are going through persecutions. This is their very reality. In a culture where we might not think about heaven much, we don't pray for Jesus to return. For those who are persecuted, that is their gift. In their beatitudes, they receive the kingdom of heaven. In suffering and persecution, it forces us to depend on this all-surpassing power. And it reminds us to set our eyes on what's unseen. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what do we do? First in America, our goal is to, to be filled with courage. Where there's fear, to be filled with courage. Where there's hope, to be filled with courage. For us to be the faithful witness that God wants us to be in every situation. Even though you might feel like for you to be a faithful witness, you might feel like, delicate like a jar, a clay jar, we are called to press in with great courage and faith to be who God's called us to be. But for the global church, what do we do with that? What do we do with all these stats? I believe what we do is we are called to practice solidarity. It's hard to know what to do with those numbers, but the fact is that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are today experiencing persecution. And some of us might be called to give and go but all of us can pray. All of us can pray. So to help us pray, we're now going to see one person's story. 